The following is a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org. Let's open our Bibles to Romans chapter 12. Once again, Romans chapter 12. We are still in this series that we have entitled Gospel-Shaped Relationships, and we're looking at how we as believers uh, love one another. And we're studying uh, both how we as Christians relate to fellow Christians, that's verses 9 to 16, and then in a little while we'll get to verses 17 to 21, which teach us how we relate to those outside the church. And our initial study has been, of course, on how we as believers relate to fellow believers, how we relate to one another. It's very important, very critical. Um, Some have captured the difficulty of this in a rhyme that you've heard. I think I've mentioned it here before. It says, to live above with saints we love, oh, that will be glory. But to live below with saints we know, now that's a different story. And, you know, I think that does capture the, the difficulty sometimes of being in relationships with fellow believers. We love the church. We love this church. And if you just pause for a moment and you think about how incredible the church is, it it really is an incredible living organism. God could have saved us and He could have just left us alone. He could have brought us to Himself and allowed us to remain solo in the Christian life. He could have done this amazing work of redemption in us and just left us to live the Christian life individually. He could have done that. But... God, in His great love and kindness for us, has actually created this organism known as the church. He's brought us into this fellowship, into these relationships for mutual edification and mutual encouragement. It's marvelous. It's an act of His grace. And and if you just look around for a moment, there are people sitting here in this room that you never would have fellowshiped with or known or had any relationship with had it not been for Christ. Just look around. There's people around you that think differently. They have different backgrounds. They have different educations. They have very different personalities. And we're not even related to each other biologically. What is it that unites us? It's Christ. He brings us together into this marvelous entity known as the church. But if we're honest, as wonderful as it is and as marvelous as it is and as glorious as the church is, we we have to admit that Relationships are not always that easy, even amongst us sitting here in this room. Sometimes we hurt one another and we offend one another and relationships become strained. And so living relationally well in the family of God can be difficult. And that's why there are over 40 commands in the New Testament for how we're to relate to one another. I'm not going to read them all, but just listen to some of these. Stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Confess your sins to one another, build up one another, comfort one another, employ your spiritual gift in serving one another, pray for one another, encourage one another, greet one another, live in peace with one another, have fellowship with one another, accept one another, bear one another's burdens, admonish one another, serve one another, do not lie to one another, bear with one another, forgive one another, care for one another, clothe yourself with humility towards one another. 
Show forbearance to one another. Don't bite and devour one another. Submit to one another. Seek the good of one another. And the list keeps going on and on and on. We need these instructions because at times it's difficult for us to get along with each other. And so these instructions, these one another's and passages like them are intended to regulate and guide how we engage in relationship with fellow believers and those within our spiritual family. And so Paul's point in this section in Romans chapter 12 is exactly that. The gospel is meant to impact your relationships. The the wonderful news of Christ not only is meant to bring you to God and establish a vertical relationship, it is meant to actually impact radically your horizontal relationships and sanctification. So let me read once again verses 9 through 21 of Romans chapter 12. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind towards one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil for anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take for your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him, and if he is thirsty, give him a drink, and so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. 25 admonitions, 25 instructions for healthy relationships within the church. This ought to describe our body life. This ought to describe life at Maranatha Bible Church. And so we've looked at three of these already. Just quickly, we first saw a sincere love in verse 9, let love be without hypocrisy. We then secondly saw a holy hatred in verse 9. It says, abhor what is evil. And thirdly, we saw a righteous adherence, verse 9, cling to what is good. Well, with those first three kind of as our introduction, we, we want to continue on. We're just going to pick it up right here. Number four. Let's dive right back into this. Verse 10 gives us number four, a brotherly affection. A brotherly affection. And you can see it at the beginning of verse 10. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. The New King James says, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. The ESV says, love one another with brotherly affection. The ASV says, in love of the brethren, be tenderly affectioned one to another. Another version says, love each other as brothers and sisters. And another version says, love one another warmly as Christians. The idea here is that as believers, we have this family kind of love, a familial kind of love. Now, You remember that we began this whole section back in verse 9 in the first phrase. It says, let love be without hypocrisy. 
And now we come again in verse 10 to this whole issue of love. But Paul's going to turn the screws a little tighter in this section than he did in the first phrase in verse 9. You may remember that a few weeks ago we said that there are four words in the Greek for love. We just have one, love. In the Greek language, there's four. Agape is one. We saw that back in verse 9. That's the word that's used there. It's a sacrificial love, a selfless love, a, a love of commitment. And then there's eros, which is a love of passion or a sexual love or a love of physical desire. That word is not used anywhere in Scripture. And then there's two more words, philos or phileo and storge. And both of those words are used right in this phrase here in verse 10. Philos or phileo is the love of friendship. It's a love of friendship. It's the tender affection that you have for a friend. That's phileo love. And then there's storge love, which is a familial kind of love, a love that takes place within a a family between brothers and sisters, at least it's supposed to happen between brothers and sisters, between parents and children and husbands and wives. And Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, brings together both of those words. He says, be devoted, that's the word philostorgos, and then he uses another word, in brotherly love, that's the word philadelphia. And so, Paul tells us exactly what this kind of love is to be like. Be devoted, philostorgos, philos and storge. It's the love of affection amongst a family. It's the, the love that takes place within a family unit. Be devoted with brotherly love, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Philos, love, and Adelphos, brothers, it's the, 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 the love that you have for brothers and sisters. And so Paul brings all these words together and he uses them to refer to the kind of relationships that ought to be taking place not only within a biological family, but also within a spiritual family. The kind of love that we have for one another in the church ought to be mirrored off of the love that you have within your family. The kind of love that you have for your wife, husband, and husband for your wife, and parents towards your kids, and kids towards your parents, that kind of same love ought to characterize the kind of relationships that we have within the church and how we serve one another and care for one another. It's that kind of familial love that ought to define us at Maranatha. In fact, Paul is almost saying that in many cases, the love that you experience and you display towards one another as fellow believers may be even tighter and more significant than the love you have in your biological family. I can relate to that. I have great love for my family, especially my wife and kids and my extended family, but there are some within my extended family that are not walking with the Lord. And so it's hard to have that true fellowship and that true love. And, it, and I sit here and I stand here and I look out and I see your faces and I think, my people, my brothers, my sisters. In many cases, you are more family to me than some within my extended family. And Paul says that that 
kind of love that should be true within any family ought to also be within the church. We ought to have Philadelphia love. Listen to some other places where that word is used. The, the word philostorgos is not used in Scripture except here. It's the only place Paul uses it. But the word Philadelphia is used in a number of other places. Listen to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and verse 9. He says, Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. Hebrews 13 verse 1, Let the love of the brethren continue. Same word. 1 Peter 1, verse 22, since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. So, so Paul's telling us that within the church, amongst these relationships or amongst the relationships you have with other believers, there must be a warm tenderly familial affection coursing through the life and the DNA of any healthy church. Let me do a couple references with you. Go over to 1 Timothy chapter 5. Hold your finger in Romans 12 and go over to 1 Timothy chapter 5. And then from there, we're going to go to 1 John. So we're going to go to those two places. Go first to 1 Timothy chapter 5. And I want you to notice how Paul begins this chapter. First Timothy, writing to Timothy, the church at Ephesus, he says in verse 1 of chapter 5, do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father, to the younger men as brothers, the older women as mothers, and the younger women as sisters in all purity. And he goes on to describe widows and the kind of treatment that churches should have towards widows. But I want you to notice how he begins this chapter. He says, in the family of God, you must not rebuke an older man, but appeal to him as a father, to the younger men as brothers. And when it comes to the older women in the church, you treat them as mothers, and to the younger women, you consider them sisters. A family kind of love, a family kind of treatment that, that helps us serve and care for and love one another. Over to 1 John. Let me show you a couple other passages that underscore just how critical this kind of familial affection is towards one another within the church. 1 John chapter 2, verse 7. You remember 1 John, of course, is the book that gives us tests of a true believer. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 7, he says, Beloved, I am not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment, which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which, I have, which you have heard. On the other hand, I am writing a new commandment to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. The one who says he is in the light, now watch this, and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Wow. It says if you hate your brother, your fellow Christian, John says it's very likely that you're not even a true believer. 
Because the, the true test of, of being a believer, one of them is that you, you love those who are within the church, those who are in the bride of Christ, fellow believers. Go down to chapter 3, verse 10. It says the same thing, chapter 3, verse 10. He says, by this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Interesting. The children of God... And the children of the devil are obvious. How can you tell who belongs to God and how can you tell who belongs to Satan? He tells us, anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. It's that that simple. It's that clear. If you say, I know God and I love God and I have a relationship with God and I'm a believer and I'm a Christian, but you despise God fellow believers, John says, check your heart. You may not be saved. You may be a child of the devil. Verse 11, for this is the message you have heard from the beginning that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. He says, don't be like Cain. Cain manifested his rebellion of God and the fact that he was a child of the devil because he killed his brother. He said, I've never killed a brother. I've never killed anybody. Oh, but have you gotten angry? Because Jesus says if you get angry, it's like murder. Let's go down to chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 7, he says, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Verse 8, the one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. You see how incredible this is? If you claim to know God and you claim that God has done a work in your heart and you claim the gospel has riveted your heart, then that has to manifest itself in love for each other. Down to verse 20. He says, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Can you get any clearer than that? God says, if you say you love someone and yet you hate your brother, or you say, I love God, but you hate your brother, God says, you're lying. And the truth of God is not in you. So, go back to Romans chapter 12. This is exactly what Paul is getting at when, when he comes back in chapter, 10, or chapter 12, verse 10. He says, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Do you realize that every single person who becomes a Christian is your brother and sister? Every single one. It doesn't matter what they look like or their background or their education or their occupation or their personality or their race or their nationality. It doesn't matter that maybe they rub you the wrong way. What matters is if they are in Christ, they're your brother or your sister. And so all of these instructions apply to one big spiritual family. And added to that is this. 
but you're going to spend eternity with them. Think about that. You say, man, I just, I can't stand that person. Well, you better get used to it because you're going to spend eternity with them. So start now, right? Might as well start loving them now. Might as well get a head start on this. And, and what this really does is it, it puts our conflicts with fellow believers in perspective. Are you really going to hold grudges against someone who's your part of your family and someone with whom you will spend eternity worshiping the Lord forever in perfection? So, do you, do you have contempt towards someone? Is there, is there someone perhaps in this room that you've maybe disowned in your heart because you've had a conflict with them, they've hurt you, there's been some misunderstanding, you've given up on the relationship, you've chosen just to avoid them and not even talk to them, and you're nursing this relational wound, and you're holding a grudge against that person? Beloved, let, let the words of Paul sink into your heart. You, you must treat them as a fellow family member, and your choice only is to love. And if you don't, it's a lack of love. So is there someone you need to talk to today? Is there somebody you need to call today? Is there someone perhaps you need to tap on the shoulder before they leave church today? And do you need to have a conversation with them? There's really no other option. To hold a grudge, as someone has well said, is to doubt the judge. To hold a grudge against that person is to be unloving, to hold a grudge against them and to, to nurse your hurts and their hurts and to hold that between the two of you is, is not to be loving. And so Paul says when it comes to the family of God, there must be a brotherly affection. Number five, Paul goes on in verse 10 and he tells us that there must also be a preferential treatment. This goes right along with the very first phrase, verse 10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Then look what he says, give preference to one another in honor. There must be a preferential treatment. By that, I don't mean you give a biased treatment. It just means that you prefer someone over yourself. That's the idea of this last phrase in verse 10, give preference to one another in honor. It means you put the needs of the other person before yourself. It means you, you put their desires of others before yourself. You say, that's not easy to do. And you're right, it's not. This is hard. And, and I think we'll all be quick to say, yeah, that's, that's what we should be doing. I want to be humble and I, I want to put the needs of others before myself. But let's just face the reality that this, this is not as easy as it sounds. It's, it's fine as long as no one else is involved, Right? You have your preferences and you have your expectation of how things are going to be done and, and you have an idea of how things ought to happen and you hold those expectations pretty tightly and, and you, you think if everyone just saw things the way you did, everything would be fine, which works until someone else enters your life who has some other set of preferences and suddenly those preferences collide and now there's a conflict with someone else because their preferences don't match your preferences. What do you do? I think I've told you before um, a couple years ago about one of Julie and I's earliest fights. It's 25 years ago, we were 
in Spokane and needing to buy a washing machine and a dryer, and we were there at Montgomery Wards in Spokane and picked out the nice washing machine, and then it comes to the dryer, and everything was fine until we realized that this one particular model came with an option that has a light on it that tells you how exactly dry the clothes in the dryer are, and it's $50 more for this light. And to me, this is a no-brainer. I mean, why do you need a light for that? You just open your hand, the, the thing, you stick your hand in, and oh, it's still wet, you close the door, and 50 bucks for that? My wife had some other ideas about that option. Now, this is 25 years ago. We're newly married, and, and you know, 50 bucks is a lot, and yet she thinks that that's important and that's critical. And, and so we're having this, this argument in wards, and the salesman walks away. He realizes this is not going well. And so we further our discussion, and we come to a decision, and we buy the dryer with the light on it, <laughs> which is what any wise husband would do. And I had to live with that horrible dryer for the next 23 years. Every time I saw that light, it just convicted me. Horrible light. Hated that light. Preferences. We all have our idea of how these things ought to go. We all have an expectation about how these things need to happen. And so Paul says in verse 10, give preference to one another in honor. In other words, when it comes to your preferences, the wise, godly believer is going to be the one who with eagerness leads the way in giving up their preferences rather than fighting for their preferences. That's what the word give preference means. It means to take the lead, and the idea here is you take the lead in being the first one who will give up their preferences. My wife and I often talk about a race to repentance, Racing to be the, the first one who will actually seek to reconcile a situation. And part of that is a race to giving up your preferences. James Montgomery Boyce says this is how true love functions. It gets to the front of the line, not to receive its own honors, but to show honor and respect for other people. That, that's the idea here. You get in line and, and you want to be the first one in the line, not so you can get your preferences, but you want to be the first one in line so you can give up those preferences. It's almost a competition. And that's the idea behind this phrase here. There's almost this idea of a competition. Who is going to be the first one to budge? Who's going to outdo one another in giving honor? That's how the ESV actually interprets this phrase. Outdo one another in showing honor. It should almost be a game. It should almost be a competition between you and the person that you are in conflict with, not to get your way, but to give up your preferences to promote harmony and unity within that relationship. This is the idea over in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. You don't need to turn there, but just listen. You know these verses well. The same root of this word is used over in that verse. It says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, 
but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves, and do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. A godly believer will be willing to overlook their preferences. They, they will be willing to hold those preferences with an open hand instead of tight fisted, clinging to them, wanting your way, demanding your way, the godly believer, the gospel-shaped Christian will hold those preferences with an open hand and the willingness to defer to others. Beloved, mark this down. This may be one of the greatest tests of your humility. One of the greatest tests, one of the greatest litmus tests of your humility or your pride is your ability to give up your preferences. A prideful, selfish individual will want to hold on to them tightly. They will be the last one to give them up. They will go to the mat for those things. They will hold them tightly. They will be tight-fisted when it comes to them, when it comes to their preferences. And so the degree to which you are willing to give up those preferences is a test of your humility. Are you humble? This is something that we as elders strive for and are working together. We have eight elders here, and um, as you know, we don't vote. We don't vote as a church. We don't have congregational meetings where we vote. We don't take votes as elders either. Every single decision that we make as an elder team is a unanimous decision. And I will tell you straight up that to get eight men to agree on a decision is not automatic. It takes some work. In fact, if you ever hear the elders are kind of struggling and there's some conflict and, and, and they're working, don't, don't be alarmed by that. That's normal kind of relationships. You shouldn't be surprised if you ever hear that the elders are kind of on different pages and they're working through things and there's some conflict there. Don't, don't be shocked by that because that's what happens in your relationships as well. So how do you get eight men who don't always agree on things and don't have the same preferences about things? We're not talking about doctrinal convictions here. I'm not talking about those things. I'm talking about preferential issues and, and issues that may not have direct biblical principles to. How, how do we get to a point of unanimity in all of those decisions? Here's how it happens. Each one of us has to hold our preferences very loosely. When it comes to those decisions, some of those men are not going to get what they want. In that case, in another case, they may get what they want. In another case, they may not get what they want. Listen, there, there's been a number of decisions where I have not gotten my preferences. You know, well, you're the teaching pastor. It doesn't matter. I'm not the senior pastor of Maranatha Bible Church. I'm a fellow elder with these men, and each man has an ability and a, and a right to weigh in on those decisions. And so when it comes to decisions that we have to make for the church, we defer we hold those preferences loosely so that we can achieve unity and come to unanimous decisions. We believe that's critical because we see the elders as a microcosm of the church. How the elders go, the church goes. And so we believe that we have to model within our elder meetings the very kind of things that we're expecting of you in your relationships with one another. And so we take this very seriously, that we prefer one another, we defer to one another in order to come to a point of unanimous decisions. That's the same thing that you have to do. 
you have to have the same attitude, and we've not done this perfectly, but you have to do the, the, the same approach in your relationships with fellow believers, and you're going to be tested on this on a regular basis in your homes, in your church. recently heard Jerry Ragg, our president of our seminary, say this. He says, heaven is not going to be a reflection of your personal preferences. And I thought about that for a while, and he thought, that is so right. I think for many of us, we have this secret idea that when we get to heaven, Christ is going to be on our side. And he's going to say, you know what? You're such a saint because you endured all of those oppositions. You are right. Your preferences were right. <laughs> Be honest. That's what we think, right? Sometimes we just get in this mentality. We get in this issue where, where there's this conflict and, and we believe that someday it's all going to be shown to be what it really is and we're just right. Let, let me just break it to you. Heaven is not going to be a reflection of your personal preferences. Heaven is going to be a reflection of Christ and His preferences. And so we have to get used to this idea of giving up our preferences, to deferring to one another and preferring one another. And, and just imagine a moment what, what this would look like. I think there's healthy relationships here. I, I believe that we're seeing God bless relationships here at Maranatha Bible Church, and we're thankful for that, and we're, we're blessed by that. But let's also admit that we know that in a church of 250 people, there's going to be conflict. There's going to be friction. Imagine what your small group would look like. Imagine what relationships with people here that maybe you're even sitting close to this morning, what those would look like. Imagine what your marriages would look like if in honor you considered others more important than yourself. By the way, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, speaking to husbands, says, Husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker since she is a woman and show her honor. Same word here is in Romans 12.10. Show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. You see? This attitude, even if you're a single person, th th this matters for you as well in your relationships and how you relate to fellow believers in the circles that you go in. You, we all have to have a point where we come to recognize that our preferences are not necessarily divinely inspired. So we need to hold them loosely in love, preferring one another. Number six, there's another one, an enthusiastic diligence. Not only must there be a brotherly affection and a preferential treatment, there must be, number six, an enthusiastic diligence. Look at verse 11. Paul says, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. That first phrase there, not lagging behind in diligence. The NIV says, never be lacking in zeal. The ASV says, in diligence, not 
slothful. The ESV says, do not be slothful in your zeal. And another version says, do not be indolent when zeal is required. Paul says, when it comes to the Christian life, we're called to be diligent. We're called to not be idle or sluggish or slothful. He says, not lagging behind in diligence, not shrinking back, not hesitating from it, not being timid about it, not living in some sort of lazy fashion, lacking zeal or intensity, not apathetic about spiritual things. That's not the attitude that Paul is calling us to. He is instead calling us to an attitude of zeal and diligence. By the way, Jesus used the same word, lagging behind. He used it to describe that individual who did not invest his talent well. Do you remember that story, the parable? The parable of the talents, the first man got five, he invested them and did well, and the second man got two and invested those and got a return. And the last man, the lazy man, received one and did nothing with it except buried it in the ground. And Jesus says to that man, you wicked, lazy slave, same term, lazy. Paul says we must not be lazy in our diligence, in our zeal, in our devotion. That's the idea of the word diligence here. You can see it up in verse 8. Look what he says in verse 8 in the context of spiritual gifts. Speaking of those who, who lead, he says it must be done with diligence. He says if you have the spiritual gift of leadership or administration, then do it. Lead with diligence, with devotion, with zeal, with intensity. And it's that same idea here in verse 11, not lagging behind in diligence. You need to be persistent. You need to be devoted. You need to be diligent. You need to be a hard worker. You need to be assiduous. I love that word. You need to be assiduous, meaning you need to show great care and perseverance. You need to be constant and unremitting and working diligently and showing hard work. Someone who is assiduous is someone who works hard and diligently at whatever they're called to do. That's the idea here. Paul says, make sure that when it comes to your Christian life and it comes to your relationships and it comes to spiritual things, make sure that you are applying to those things Diligence, effort, zeal, readiness, dedication, hard work, and a sense of urgency. You could say it this way, that following Christ should never be done in a passive, apathetic manner. Paul wants us to be understanding of the fact that complacency and laziness in our relationship with Christ and our relationship with others has no place in the Christian life. No place for apathy and slothfulness and slovenly attitude towards the things that God has called us to do. He's calling us to a life of diligence. He's calling us to a life of hard work. He's calling us to a life of faithful devotion to Him and His church and His people. I think this is something we all have to fight. I think if we're all honest, we, we will all admit that we like it easy. We like to coast. We love our comforts. We love our entertainment. We love our pleasures. We, we love all those things. We love to go in neutral because it, oh man, it feels so good. 
something we have to fight. Listen to some of these passages in Scripture. Ecclesiastes 9, verse 10. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Ephesians 5, verses 15 and 16, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. Use your time well. Are you taking advantage of the the time that God has given you? Do you uh, faithfully use those resources that God has entrusted to you for the furtherance of His kingdom and for the relationships He's given you in your own spiritual life? Are you taking advantage of that? Are you making the most of your time? Colossians 3.17, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Colossians 3, verses 23 and 24, whatever you do, do your work heartily as to the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of inheritance. And then Hebrews chapter 6, verses 10 and 11, for God is not unjust. So as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward His name and having ministered and still ministering to the saints. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence. Is that you? When it comes to your Christian life and you come to the things of the Lord and it comes to your relationships and it comes to the, the things that are, are, are critical in the life of a believer, are you, are you diligent? Do you love His church? Do you love His people? Do you, do you hate sin? Do you love His Word? Are you committed to Christ? Are you faithful in the disciplines? Are you faithful in prayer? Are you getting after those things? We need to understand that apathy is the cancer of the Christian life. Apathy is the cancer of the Christian life. And personally, I believe that apathy is one of the greatest threats to American Christianity. Got it easy. We've got it easy in America. Things come easy. Got all our needs met. We've got plenty of entertainment, plenty of pleasures, plenty of things to give us comforts. Life is pretty cushy for American Christians. And I think we all need to admit that at times apathy has taken root in our hearts. It's easy to coast. It's easy to just kind of go in neutral. It's easy to not put in the effort. It's easy not to fight sin. It's easy to let things go. It's easy to not keep short account of sin anymore. It's easy to let those times with the word fade. It's easy to not come to church. It's easy. Don't do anything. You've got to fight that. Someone has well said that anything worth doing is worth doing right. And nowhere is that more true than in the Christian life. If it's worth doing, then do it right. Do it diligently. Do it assiduously. Do it with devotion. Do it with intensity. Now, let me give you the flip side of this. I'm not saying you don't relax. Please hear me, what I'm saying. I'm not saying you don't take vacations. I love vacations. I love downtime. I I love a movie with my wife every once in a while. I I love those things, and you should as well. I'm not, not trying to be legalistic here, but... Walking with the Lord deserves the best of your energies. 
Walking with Christ deserves the most of your affections. Being a believer, God should receive the the best of you, the best of your time, the best of your affections, not the leftover. James Montgomery Boyce again says this. He says, it's a puzzle to me how anyone can take on the most important business of all, the business of being a follower of Jesus Christ, and do it in a passive, apathetic, part-time, or slovenly manner. Yet many do. What we should do is to follow after Christ with all of our hearts and minds and with all of the energy at our disposal. We should work at being Christians, end quote. Is that you? Do you work at this? Notice he doesn't say work for being a Christian. This is all by grace, absolutely. But once you come to know Christ, there is some effort that we put in. And so, are you working at being a Christian? Diligence. Perseverance. Persistence. We need to understand that the goal of the Christian life is not to get to a point where we can just lounge around. That we need to face that reality, that the goal of the Christian life is not to just get a point where you can kind of kick your feet up and enjoy the comforts for the rest of your life. That's not Christianity. I'm not against retirement. You come to a point where you're going to retire from your job. There's no issue there, but the Bible knows nothing about spiritual retirement. There's nothing about getting to a point where you can just kind of get to a a time where you feed your leisure and you feed your fun and your entertainment and you, you get to feed your desire for comfort and all those earthly things. It puts all that in perspective. None of those things are wrong. Enjoy those things. Enjoy what God has given you. Enjoy the grace of God in some of those things. But the, 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 the tenor of a Christian life is not those things. It's diligence, striving, persistence, busy in the things of the Lord, diligent in your relationships, serving others, active in ministry, tenacious and striving hard against sin, making much of God through your lives. My wife and I oftentimes say we'd rather burn out than rust out. Right? I'd rather burn out than rust out. I'd rather just go out walking hard with the Lord and pursuing the Lord rather than sitting in my easy chair with a, I don't know, something in my hand, (laughs) juice, I don't know pretzels, I don't know, and just go out and rust out. I think we need to hear this. So many of you do this so well. You've been faithfully serving the Lord for so many years. I've been here 14 years. I know many of you so well, and you're still zealous for Christ, you're still walking with Him, you're still here, you're still committed, you're still fighting sin, you're still working on your marriage, you're, you're still serving the church, you're still faithful in your participation in body life, you're still teaching kids and youth and children, and you're still active in your small group, and you're, you're still persevering in the things of the Lord, and that is a huge encouragement to all of us. See, what does this have to do with relationships? That's what it has to do with relationships because when you model that for us, we get to see it and we're challenged and we're encouraged and we're ministered to by your zeal and your diligence. When I get weary, sometimes when discouragement sets in in life and ministry, I just see some of you. You're still faithful, still walking with the Lord 
still consistent, still persistent, still at church, still involved in the life of the body. It's a massive encouragement to us. Say, Todd, does this mean you're you're telling us to get more busy? Add more things to my already pressed calendar. I'm not saying that. But it may come down to evaluating your priorities. It may come down to thinking about those things that you devote yourself to and the time that you have. And it may come down to prioritizing your life so that it manifests the proper things in your life. You may need to carve some things out of your life. You may need to say no to certain other things so that your life can be characterized by one who's not lagging behind in diligence. Let's do one more. Number seven, we'll finish with this one, a fervent spirit. A fervent spirit. Look at the middle phrase in verse 11, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, hot. The word fervent means hot. Boiling, it came to refer to someone who's zealous and enthusiastic, someone who is fervent in spirit. Some take that capital S, or that to be a capital S, fervent in the Holy Spirit, but it's probably best to take it as fervent in lowercase s, fervent in spirit, meaning fervent in your commitment, fervent in your human spirit, fervent in your zeal, fervent in your diligence, fervent in your commitment. There's this underlying attitude of zeal in the things of the Lord and a willingness to devote yourself entirely to those things. Turn over to Acts chapter 18 for just a moment. Just look at this very quickly. Acts chapter 18. I want to show you an example of a man who characterized, was characterized by this. And the same phrase, fervent in spirit, is used to describe a man by the name of Apollos. Acts chapter 18, verse 24. Referring to this man, Apollos, a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, came to Ephesus, and he was mighty in the Scriptures. And this man had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit. How did he manifest that fervency? He was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of John. And he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue. Don't you love that? Here's a man who is fervent in his spirit, and because of that, he's speaking, he's teaching, he's out in the synagogue, he's proclaiming, he's unashamed in his boldness, he's passionate, he's zealous, he's driven by an inner desire to know Christ and to walk with Christ and to make him known. Here's a man who's fervent in spirit. And notice, by the way, notice the connection to this in verse 24, that he was mighty in the Scriptures. Don't miss that connection. How do you have fervency in your spirit, and how are you zealous for the things of the Lord? There has to be an intimate connection to your knowledge of Scripture and your love of Scripture. Here is a man who is mighty in the Scriptures, and it manifests itself in a life of zeal and diligence and fervency for the things of the Lord. Do you have that? Back to Romans chapter 12. This is the idea behind the phrase fervent in spirit, where your heart is so gripped by things of the Lord that it drives you, it compels you, it motivates you, it moves you. You see how this is connected to the first phrase we just looked at. On the one hand, you're not going to lag behind in diligence because on the other hand, you are already motivated internally by the things of the Lord that drive your spiritual life so that those realities are not just boring and mundane. So what are you fervent about? You're fervent about something. 
Every one of us in this room are fervent about something. How do you know? Because I've seen some of you watch football games. I've seen some of you out on the flag football field. You're fervent about some things. Are you fervent about the right things? I went back this week and I just went back and revisited our church philosophy of ministry. And I was reminded of the ten core values that comprise our passions. And I want to just read them to you. Just uh, These are the things that make us passionate. These are the things that make us fervent in spirit. These are the things that drive us. These are the things that make us pound the table. And I ask, would they drive you as well? Number one, God-centered worship. We're committed to declaring God's glory through worship, which magnifies Him in our praise and manifests Him in our actions. Number two, biblical authority. We are committed to God's sufficient authoritative word in all matters of belief and behavior for our enjoyment of God and for the ministry of the church, including the verse-by-verse exposition of God's word as a means of bringing about spiritual transformation in the lives of His people. Number three, sound doctrine. We're committed to being a pillar in support of the truth by holding fast to sound doctrine as found in the Word of God. Number four, prayerful dependence. We're committed to prayer as the means by which we couple ourselves to God's power for all of our efforts in life and ministry. Number five, relational roles. We're committed to husbands, wives, children, fulfilling their biblical roles in the family and in the church. Number six, qualified leadership. We're committed to the submission of Maranatha Bible Church to a plurality of qualified elders who lovingly serve and shepherd the church. Number seven, active ministry. Number eight, edifying fellowship. Number nine, purposeful equipping. Number 10, evangelistic outreach. Those are the things that drive us. Fervency in those things, fervency in the things that matter, fervency in those things that get us excited, that make the juices flow, that make us pump our fists and say, yes, that's what we're committed to. Are you committed to those things? If someone were to look at your life and they would evaluate what you're fervent about, what would they see? What would they see? Are you getting exercised about God, Christ, the gospel, the church, the things of the Lord, His Word, evangelism? Are those things that drive you and excite you, those weighty, eternal, glorious things that matter for all eternity? Does that drive you? Or is your fervency defined by worldly temporal pleasures? Movies, music, internet, what drives you? Mark of a healthy church is being fervent about the right things. Well, that's seven of 25. Uh, you'll have to keep coming back, and we're going to have to keep working through these together. Pray with me. Father, these are so, so important for us. So critical, Lord, for us to evaluate our lives, our church, our body life against these criteria. Lord, we want to be defined by these things. We want to be marked by these things individually. We want these admonitions to define our church, our marriages, our relationships with one another, our parenting, our interaction with those who may be a part of another church. Lord, we, we want to be defined by this passage of Scripture. 
So, Lord, work in us. Sanctify us. Grow us. And, Father, in particular, if there are broken relationships here today, would you use a submission to Scripture, to this passage, to begin the process of healing those relationships? For your honor and glory, in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church in Comstock Park, Michigan, where we exist to display God's glory, declare God's truth, delight in God's Son, and disciple God's people. No part of this digital file may be reproduced or distributed without prior written consent. For permission, go to mbcmi.org.